You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Thank you for your patience with our technical situations. Um, this is, I think, my first event at this location, so I'm pretty amazed at uh, where we all are and how this is functioning. It's pretty cool to be in a car park. Um, Paul, can I just check that you can hear me? Is that... Can you hear me? No? Yes? No? Yes? Okay. Um, so... I'd like to first, before we start, acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that we're gathered on today and pay my respects to the people of the Eastern Kulin, particularly their elders past, present and future, and also any Indigenous people that may be here with us today. Uh, my name is Sarah Lynn Rees, and I'm a Palawa woman descending from the Plangamarina people and Trawaway people of Northeast Tasmania, as well as convicts from the Cambridgeshire region in England. Um, I've been, had the fortune to uh, be curating the Black Architecture series for, I think, four years now. I think this is our fourth season. Um, and this is the third talk of this season. And these talks are always um, intended to be sort of um, free and open for people to come to, to understand. You don't have to have a background in architectural design to hear this conversation. But really what we're trying to do is have a conversation that brings to light um, what we're talking about at the moment in architecture and design. Um, especially as it relates to Indigenous design and how we all have obligations and responsibilities. And I'm just going to try and open my iPad because technological difficulties keep happening and we love that. Um, and I'm opening onto a pellet grill because that's what I got for my birthday today, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, so... Uh, this talk is about is called Black Architecture Design Obligations. So the question or the premise of this talk is what do our environments become if we consider the act of design to be less about responding to the rights of humans and more about responding to the collective obligations we all have to care for the country. So this yam will explore those responsibilities and that we all share that in the sense that we temporarily inhabit this country and how we might um, how it might influence the way that we design. So joining me today is Sky, Maddie, and Paul, um, and I'll just ask them all to introduce themselves. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Sky, would you like to start? Hi everyone. I'm Sky Haldane. Um, I'm a non-indigenous um, design practitioner. I'm a landscape architect. I was born on the lands of the Nahu and um, Bangala people in the southern tip of Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. But I've spent most of my adult life living and working on the lands of the Eastern Kulin in Melbourne. Um, I've been interested in, um, I guess, understanding landscape through the lens of um, traditional owners since I was at university. Um, the land is the tool of um, landscape architecture and we can't operate in that space without actually understanding the history of place and the systems that are functioning there as well as the cultural connections to those places. So um, I've been really fortunate through my practice um, predominantly through public landscapes, um, to engage with um, communities and understand how, as a non-Indigenous person, what is my agency through the role and skills that I have to um, bring some of those um, opportunities to life. 
Hi, everybody. My name's Maddie. I'm a Darug woman. Uh, my traditional lands form most of Western Sydney, um, and we are the Hawkesbury people. I am an archaeologist, so I study the past through its cultural remains, Victorian um, archaeology, particularly in Melbourne, and understanding um, colonial histories and hidden landscapes. And I've also worked with Indigenous peoples across the world on their heritage. And Paul, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Paul Herzich. I'm a Ghana Nutteri landscape architect and visual and public artist here in Adelaide, which is in Ghana country. So I'm a traditional owner of Ghana country as well. So my particular focus is on uh, keeping my culture alive through um, through the landscape and through public art and uh, and particular focus on the people, uh, and culture and the art that goes along with it. Uh, thank you, everyone. So, as I said before, the title of this talk is called Design Obligation. So, I thought we might talk a little bit about what that actually... Well. It's sort of oh. fading in and out and a bit echoey, so I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Paul. Um, can you hear me now? Is that fine? I couldn't understand that, sorry. Mm, okay. I might um, handball that issue to someone else. Um, maybe we'll continue this conversation and then we'll pick up with you, Paul, when we've, um, we've sorted that out. Um, so the first uh, sort of topic I guess I want to talk about is what does design obligation mean to each of us? I guess to me it's sort of twofold. It's the, the obligation that we have that we're, is inherent within our profession. So what does so – I'm an architect or not registered yet but will be. Um, so what does that mean that my responsibilities are as an architect, landscape architecture but also your role at the City of Melbourne – um, or however they mesh, archaeology and Paul as well with landscape architecture. So I, I guess my first question to you all is um, how do you classify what design obligation actually means to you? It's like I'm um, underwater. Um, I guess for me it's understanding what is your real responsibility, I guess broadly within your professional practice but then also specifically for each of the projects that you might be um, undertaking and what is your agency to your, um, I guess, the company that you work for and represent and the community, um, I guess, that's involved in the projects that you're working on. Um, I do work at the City of Melbourne and so um, I guess my responsibility through the work I'm currently doing is to the community, um, the residents and workers and visitors to the city and um, through that practice there's... Um, I guess, strategies and other broader responsibilities that we have inherent to what we're doing, which all shape what the projects are. Um, so I guess that's the fundamental obligation there through, um, through that. But then also, as a practitioner, um, you're wanting to ensure that your, um, your practice isn't detrimental to, um, you know, the survival of the planet and the ongoing prosperity of communities. So I guess it's understanding where, where does that balance sit in terms of the decisions that you actually have agency um, in making. So I think the obligation is to understand as an individual how do your decisions um, affect um, what's going to happen and what is your agency to change those things um, if you can see that something um, might be um, going down a course where, you, where the outcome isn't going to be um, beneficial. Um, if anybody's having difficulty hearing us over the trucks and things, feel free to move forward. Um, it's fine if you want to move around during the discussion and come forward if you can't hear. Um, 
sorry. Uh, <laughs> but for me, obligations, I think, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a practitioner of the past. I deal in the past. Um, and so it's really about the obligations that I have to the people of the past and telling their stories. And then how does that translate into what we do um, currently? I think, um, you know, and, and that sort of as an archaeologist and then as an Indigenous woman, I have obligations to country and I have obligations to culture. Um, and part, and that's sort of part of our, our sort of like deep ethos of, um, as Indigenous people is that sort of um, those strong cultural obligations that we have. And when you're welcomed onto country and when you... And most of you here probably have been welcomed onto country or attended a welcome to country event. Um, you know, listens carefully to the words that are saying because those obligations then apply to you as non-Indigenous people as well. You also have obligations to care for this place and to care for um, care for culture and care for country. And so I think um, part of my work is, is learning about the past and learning about the ways in which our old people embedded ideas of sustainability, the way in which our old people modified country and maintained country and... Um, those are the lessons that we can all carry forward in the ways in which we all work. Um, and so I think that, you know, my obligation is really is um, to tell those stories as truthfully as I can. Paul, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Um, yes. Can you answer the question from your perspective of what does design obligation mean to you? Yes, yeah, so I guess my core obligation is, is for my people um, and for myself to, to keep our culture alive through, um, you know, things like narrative and plant use and uh, putting back in, within a modified landscape, you know, through storytelling, engage, engagement of our people as well within projects. Um, it's the use of icons, et cetera. So you know, as we walk around the city, there's, you know, heavily modified sites. But I guess um, a benefit of living in Adelaide is that we have the parklands that surround um, the city, so um, we've got that natural environment that we can uh, go to for some relief. Um, but um, yeah, I, I also work for a lot of different other Aboriginal groups across the states, not just Ghana and Nutteri. So um, especially through the uh, the acknowledgement country science that I've been doing for 15, 16 years now. Um, so it's about um, uh, respecting other cultures, being um, to be welcome on country by. Uh, various elders and various leaders around the state as well and it's about um, for me it's about facilitating to, um, to tell their story within the landscape and to reveal that uh, cultural narrative that's so often missed as um, people are driving through on the rural roads especially um, you know, it's supposed to be paddocks and fences so um, people don't get to see that and they don't realize that so um, you know, for, for me, my own morals, I guess, it's, 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 it's a duty of care for my community and, uh, as I said, other communities. Um, but, you know, it can come down to as simple as like, caring for country. One aspect is to um, use Indigenous plants. You know, we've got a lot of PBR um, plants around now and, and a lot of you know, exotic species coming in the mix sort of thing. So, you know, the benefits of um, using the local plants is that it provides opportunities for Aboriginal people to um, uh, pass down knowledge to the, to the young ones um, and also to educate people, you know, provides learning opportunities that brings people together and forms some kind of discussion around the plant and its uses, etc. So um, there's those aspects and also it's about um, uh, benefiting the um, flora and fauna of, um, you know, of the Australian landscape. So, um, you know, you, you need to keep in mind the, um, the real, you know, people, the real um, 
locals that use these landscapes are the fauna um, and whatever um, species they are. Um, so it's about putting back what, what's been um, removed, I guess. Thanks, Paul. So I guess in that we've touched on your obligation to the community as in society, as in people um, that exist within a constituency perhaps, but then also your own personal and moral ethics, but then also about country, but then also about your community, but also other people's community when you're in other people's country. So there's so many different sort of interpretations of the, the concept of design obligation. Um, Taking aside your personal views for one moment, would you be able to respond to the question of sort of the job title that you have? Like inherently, what are the design obligations that are expected of you in that job title? Yeah, so, so not I your guess. personal ethics, but the job title yeah. itself. Yeah, so we've, um, obviously I'm a registered landscape architect under the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects or, or AILA, so um, there's a, you know, a number of morals and professional expectations that you um, need to consider. Also, the uh, work for the, the well, we used to be Department of uh, Planning, Transport and Infra Infrastructure, but now we're Department of Infrastructure and Transport, um, and now we come under Attorney General's Department as well. So they've got a whole whole list of expectations under those guys, and um, and whole list of policies that we need to you know, be brought up to speed on those so yeah so that, that's within those but then you've got expectations of the client as well um, and then you've got expectation of traditional owners so it's it's a whole um, it's a whole raft of uh, expectations from everyone that you need to need to um, you know, work through I guess. Because it's picking up on the point of the conversation you and I were having before this about um, art and architecture I was steal your line because why not? But like the fact that design is, um, or architecture and design is a constant compromise between varying competing forces, whereas art is more perhaps an individualistic exploration. Um, sorry, side note. Uh, so same question back to you, Sky and Maddie. Um, what are the in terms of your job title? What are your obligations? Um, I think adding to what Paul mentioned, I think. There's a constant, um, I, I guess, role for design practitioners to understand how to bring um, to fruition often a lot of competing interests or multiple ambitions for a project when actually not all of them are, are you know, possible um, in the same outcome. So I think that that agency and that process of understanding how are the decisions that you're making to, um, you know, and who are you involving in your process, I think to get to those um, outcomes is really um, important and I think um, in increasingly the processes that we use to get to those decisions to need to be questioned more and more as we also have obligations to involve community more and more and traditional owners um, are I guess an increasingly important part of that, that pro and what's not my knowledge and seeking that um, those perspectives out so that through my position I can be an advocate um, for those um, values and those priorities as well. But your job description, what does your job description require well, of you? My, my job description, um, I guess, um, my job description is a, a strategic design um, and so I guess I am looking with some oversight across the spectrum of work that we're doing within the design um, section of the city and to try and, I guess, assist with some of those alignments between um, 
singular briefs for projects and then also the strategic goals that we have and also to help connect people where I can see that there are synergies between um, the work that we're trying to do. So I guess I'm feel quite lucky to have that role where I can actually help people join the dots and we do have a council that has a goal um, to have a city as an Aboriginal, with an Aboriginal focus and that's a really big learning process for all of us to try and work out how do we make that happen. And your job might be the most logical of this conversation but your, your obligations based on your job title? Yeah, I guess... Um, sort of what I was reflecting on while you were both speaking was around the obligations of interpreting place and, and um, more and more as we position cities and we position places, all places on this continent as Aboriginal places, um, that brings along with it um, the opportunity to provide interpretation or to in some way display or understand a place. Um, Archaeology is often... A sort of a hidden practice. Um, you know, we're out in paddocks digging holes um, and discovering things that are thousands of years old. And so, in some ways, um, that's not such a visible thing. It's it's it is a it's a almost a science in itself. Um, but then there are places, and I'm thinking of um, the recently World Heritage listed Budge Bim um, in Victoria, where. I, when I first visited that site a number of years ago, I didn't understand what I was looking at until it was explained to me by an elder. Um, and then I couldn't not see it. I couldn't not see the intricate um, eel pathways that had been excavated by Gunditjmara and been curated by Gunditjmara um, over thousands of years. And so, in some ways, um, that sort of space for an archaeologist or somebody like me who sits in between um, the sites and the ability for people to understand those sites. And so I, I kind of see that there's a design obligation in there um, and there's a tension in between development and cultural heritage often and the retention of cultural heritage or the interpretation of it. And then is if you interpret a site, are you allowed to destroy it? You know, how much can you do before you can destroy a place? Um, and so I think that in that sort of, in that realm, um, that's where it's, it's a lot of a lot of that sort of tension in between development and cultural heritage. So I wonder then for all of you, um, not thinking about your job title or maybe thinking about it in, in the context of what you've all said, but then on top of that, what personal ethics or obligations do you actually bring on top of your role? So, you know, for example, the role of an architect has no requirement to engage with country on the state that we're in right now. But me personally, I, I find that as core to what it is that we actually do, that every project we do, whether or not, whether we can engage or not with traditional owners, still has an obligation to respect country and work with country. So I guess asking the question in that context, apart from your design, apart from your obligations that are given to you by the job description, what then do you bring and put on top of that? Um, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, I guess... For me, I'm an Aboriginal person first, but an archaeologist second, and so um, that sort of my relationships within my community are far more important than my relationships with my employer. Um, and there have been times when I've had to walk away from a project because I did not agree with the approach, and and I would not jeopardise my position in community for that outcome. Um, and so, 
you know, um, that's, I'm in a really privileged position where I can do that and a lot of Indigenous people are not in positions where they can walk away from jobs. Um, and so just reflecting on sort of that, I, you know, that's a real privilege for me to be able to do that. Um, but that is always a, a tension for Indigenous people working in any space and particularly in spaces where we're not typically found like design and architecture and um, planning and placemaking, um, where we're often seen as the um, people to consult, but not the people to work on a, on a project, um, that we often have to consider our ethics um, and ask to compromise in ways which are um, not acceptable. Paul? Yeah, so when I'm in that kind of predicament, I guess um, I need to have, I have many hats on as a as you're aware, I try to find a win-win and some kind of solution where, where all parties are happy. I haven't had the opportunity, opportunity I haven't had the um, experience to um, walk away from a project as yet, um, where I, you know, I'd like to get people on the same table, have transparent meetings, um, and try to um, aim for a, a positive outcomes, I guess. And um, as I said, I have an experience where um, the project's been on hold um, for whatever particular reason yet, but um, you know a lot of things, uh, a lot of projects come up where uh, we need to undertake a cultural heritage survey. So I mean, that's a good way of um, you know, getting involved in the project. So you know, that they can cost you know anywhere around the eight thousand dollar mark for a for a two day survey and a and a and a report. Uh, that's um, SA prices anyway. So um, um, so it's good to good to try to you know if if we someone's proposing to go, go through a burial ground, it's, it's good to um, acknowledge that and um, try to work around that. Um, you know, ultimately, the minister has the authority to, to have the final say um, within, the, within the state government anyway. So um, you know, that, that's a little bit different at a uh, high level. Um, but uh, in terms of outcomes, you know, we, we try to create a landscape that's uh, going to be a benefit to the, whatever Aboriginal community it is. And we look for that kind of engagement through, you know, as I said, the cultural heritage surveys, and there might be employment opportunities for um, Indigenous landscapers to come on board and, and build, build the landscape, et cetera, or um, be involved in otherwise. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky, but um, yeah, as I said, it's a, it's a fine balance, I guess, for, for um, trying to you know, keep everyone happy, I guess. Um, and I, I think for me, not, not being an Indigenous person, I think it's understanding um, when, when I'm asked you know, to, to look at a project, um, what's, what's the bias potentially that um, I might have around the project and or what's, what's missing from how someone has framed that project already where we might need to look at other um, opportunities and looking at then how, how do you expand the project out to see what... Um, can be delivered um, still in alignment with the budget and the scope of, of what, what's practical, but um, who else needs to be brought, brought into the room um, to, to inform that, that process? And, you know, it's, it's often really possible to, to do that. It'll just be, you know, someone's had a task to, to develop something to a certain point with a certain outcome in mind. Um, it doesn't mean that a whole range of other things can't also be delivered in parallel with that. So I think it's, you know, being open, really open-minded to that, what, can be possible. Um, 
So in that sense, do you feel, all of you, do you feel that there's an, a huge difference in who you are in terms of your job and who you are in terms of as an individual or do you feel like those roles actually mesh really well in the context of design obligations? I'm happy to jump in first. I'm, I feel really lucky with the job description that I currently have because it is... Um, it's helping, I guess, support my own personal interests, but I'm lucky to work for an organisation where um, that role fits with their strategic objectives also and they are actively trying to build those relationships um, with the traditional owners and, and other organisations to see how can we do this um, better and the fact that it's underpinned by a, a goal that the community set um, is, I guess, a really huge enabler for that and, um, you know, the more examples that we can build that actually bring um, a perspective to people that um, enables that lens of, you know, this is not a city that's just shaped by um, a Western idea of what design is. Um, the, you know, we'll continue to learn more and more. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I like to think that I can bring my whole self to work, um, warts and all. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, it's important to sort of model that in your workplace, especially when, you know, I um, work with a lot of younger Indigenous um, people and, and to show them that you don't have to sort of um, code switch at work or be a different person, that you can be yourself is, I think, important. Paul? Yeah, I, I you know, obviously put my own um, morals and, and self-worth uh, in, in the mix, but as I said, I need to, um, you know, keep, keep a few different hats on to try to have a, a smooth project and, and keep things going and keep people talking essentially uh, by proper engagement and and uh, I don't like using the word consult um, I prefer engagement um, and I think it's about an engagement of the whole journey not just at the start of a project so um, you know, one of my roles is to um, get um, architects or landscape architects to consider um, you know, good design outcomes and good design principles um, and you know, by including you know, indigenous plants and um, outdoor yarning places and learning circles and things like that and um, opportunities for um, the, the health and well-being and the safety of Aboriginal people within the broader community and in, in these um, like school environments and things like that. Um, but... Um, yeah, so, yeah, I just have to, you know, just have to keep on trying to balance it, I guess. Um, and um, you know, so I sleep at night, sort of thing. So um, and and do the right things, what's expected of me in, in within the workplace. It's interesting hearing you all talk. You've all talked, I guess, uh, about a constant compromise or having different stakeholders on projects and and having to sort of manage expectations across all of them. Um, is there any pro a project that maybe that you can think of that you've worked on where the obligation is not to an individual or to a stakeholder or to an organisation, but it's actually to country? It's actually to not necessarily history or the history of people, but the history of country. Um, Paul, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, so acknowledge my country signage that I've been working on for a long time now. It's um, not sure if all of everyone's seen it, but um, you know, there's the large laser cut signs that have got the name, main name of the main language group for that particular area. Um, and then there's interpretive signage that's incorporated into that. Um, and it's about revealing this underlying 
uh, cultural landscape um, around the state. Um, but the, you know, these these projects have uh, um, have a lot. It's a lot more than just a sign. It's about, as I said before, it's about engagement and a journey um, that that um, you know the whole team goes on, uh, not just the, like the. Uh, road engineers that are upgrading a rest area, etc. But it's about the um, you know the Aboriginal communities that are involved um, and the departments that are you know that, that fund these things, whether it's Crown Solicitor's Office or whether it's um, AGD. Um, for me, one of the projects I've worked on, um, which I guess looks slightly beyond. Um, I mean, it is still focused around the needs of humans, but um, I guess looking at our urban forest precinct um, plans and to deliver our um, urban forest strategy, it's really about that connectivity of nature within the city and I guess the opportunity for the city to be functioning better for the range of other um, life that actually that exists um, here so that we're, we're providing connected canopies for, um, for birds and other mammals to move, you know, in, complex um, ground story um, planting for insects and other um, invertebrates. So um, I guess one of the reasons why I love landscape architecture is, is because it deals with the systems of cities in that way. So I think being able to see beyond, um, I guess, the built landscape in its function for humans and see how we can actually um, connect back um, the systems like drainage and um, all of that, which continues to exist, but we shape it in a way um, that sometimes limits its value um, for us and for other living beings as well. Um, I guess sort of to a lesser extent, um, I'm involved um, a lot in sort of the planned burns of state forests. Um, and, you know, my small part of is generally around the cultural heritage, but um, taking a holistic look at the way in which we manage forests um, as sort of as a whole, as a place that contains, um, you know, plants and animals and cultural heritage, um, a place that brings us as a community many benefits. And I think that's sort of um, looking at a place as a, as a whole, and rather than pulling it apart and considering the small elements of it, is is really that sort of concept of country. Because country is not just the land; it's everything that's in it and on it and around it. Um, it's the stories, it's the it's the sky, it's the earth, it's it's all of those things are, are sort of connected and that's what country is. Um, so I think being able to think about um, activities on country such as planned burns or cultural burns as a, as a thing that affects everything and everybody um, and how that, that then benefits country. Um, you know, that's something that's sort of emerging and happening um, in the sort of southeastern states at the moment um, and has happened for a long time in other states. Um, and so that's sort of, yeah, something that's really amazing. So as, it's, it's probably important to acknowledge that we're all talking about this probably from, more from um, centering Indigenous knowledges in place and practice, but it's important that there is a plurality of understandings and of obligations that we all bring. But I do wonder, based on everything that you've all said so far and the personal ethics that you bring to your jobs or perhaps what your job description allows you to do, um, so uh, is there anything that maybe in the realm of archaeology or in the realm of landscape architecture that should change and should be fundamental to the practice of archaeology or landscape architecture or design or architecture um, that everyone should know how to do? 
And it shouldn't just be something that you bring as an individual to your role, but it's something that everyone should be doing who is in that role. Paul, maybe, do you want to go first? Yeah, I guess it's about um, you know, setting up the initial engagement with traditional owners or Aboriginal leaders. Um, it's about taking them on, on the journey that you're on as well for the benefit of the environment and better, for the benefit of the culture as well. Um, it's about you know, realising opportunities early and not later and, and not just going in and, and um, for the initial part of the project or the concept design or design development. It's about um, you know, looking at opportunities for uh, creating change and creating um, opportunities for people to come together. Like for instance, I'll... Um, now, obviously, I've mentioned before, I'll use Indigenous plants and, and that provides opportunity for people to come together and have discussion, pass on knowledge, uh, find knowledge for you know, other um, non-Indigenous people, um, but also they provide opportunities for um, resource. So, um, you know, my, in my base, in my wetland basins, I'll put in um, Cypress trimacolis or the spiny flat sedge, so that's a favourite weaving plant for uh, Ghana and Nutterjerry women and, and men. But, um, you know, to hear an elder, she's only got, you know, other than the River Murray, she's only got opportunities within the built environment to go in the Woolworths car park and collect sedges out of there. Um, you know, to me, that's, that's not on. But um, so I'd like to provide opportunities where, you know, um, to set up resources for, for these, for weavers, etc. Um, and these, um, they in turn provide opportunities for, you know, the ladies to come together and have a catch up and have a yarn and, and you know, tell stories along the way and, and um, you know, it, it essentially just brings people together. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds really deadly. I've just taken up weaving over lockdown, um, so I'd really love to be able to wander down and, you know, collect materials to be able to weave, um, you know, from my local creek or something. Um, I think, you know, sort of drawing on what um, what was just said, I think just relationship building um, is really important. I think that uh, we talk a lot about engaging with traditional owners or, um, you know, um, when to get them on board, things like that. But I think it's, it's deeper than that. It's about forming relationships with each other and um, considering that, you know, most practitioners work, you know, in one, two, three places. Like, we, we tend to stay where we are. Um, and it's building those sort of deep relationships together um, and building on that communal knowledge and, and knowledge sharing. Um, I think some, something that happens in archaeology is that we, um, we gatekeep knowledge or gatekeep our skills um, because we're the ones with degrees and like you can't do this but if, um, I think something that's really important especially um, working in um, remote communities or rural communities or like for me I worked in the Pacific um, and I'm not going to be going back to the Pacific all the time um, so why not teach them how to do this themselves um, and so I think that sort of um, ability to um, share skills is is really important, um, and I think that would be something that would benefit um, our profession a lot. I think for me too, thinking about reconciliation, um, people talk at, about it as a sort of big movement, but I think it's actually it's an individual journey that everyone needs to be on if they want to actually be a responsible 
um, actor in this in this whole process. I think understanding who you are, what you know, what is your own family heritage? Where are you from? Um, what are the um, histories that your people have been involved with? Um, and for me, that's you know, many generations in Australia, where my family's all from England, Ireland, and Scotland, have you know been on other people's country and have been farming and fishing and doing all those sorts of things and. We've benefited from that and sometimes that, that will have been at the expense of the people from that land. Um, so I think understanding your own history and connection to a place, I'm not responsible personally for those activities but I, I can be um, responsible now for what I do and my, um, yeah, so my activity on country now is what I need to engage productively in and I think as professionals that's something that we can all do to the extent that people um, kind of feel they can yet yeah, undertake that in their practice. I'm going to go slightly off script here and ask another question, um, which harks back to our first architecture talk of this um, season, which was with um, Nawi Caroline Briggs, who's a senior elder of the Bunurong community. And the topic of that talk was about what can we do when we can't engage? So when we can't have traditional owner engagement in archaeology or landscape architecture or architecture design, what are we, what is our obligation? Um, what can we do when we can't actually have that conversation with traditional owners and understand that knowledge? It might be a possible or an impossible question to ask, I don't know, but um, maybe Paul, do you want to answer that question? You just have to wait, I guess. Like, you know, not all groups, uh, especially in recent, you know, like last year, and even this year, but last year with COVID, a lot of um, communities shut down, so you couldn't get access and they had other issues to deal with and all that kind of thing. So, you all of a sudden, you know, what you think is a high-priority project for yourself and for your clients, you just can't move forward. You, you just have to wait. And um, it's about, you know, keeping in contact and, um, you know, providing, still wanting to provide opportunities for empowering Aboriginal people um, within projects. Um, as I said, you can't do it, you can't do it. So, yeah, you just have to put the project on hold, I guess. Uh, yeah. We, I don't know if we always have that luxury. Yeah, I, know, but yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the project. There's so many different ones. Um, but as my mum always said growing up, can't say can't till a dead horse kicks you. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, it's going to be broken down in many different ways and thought about in many different ways. Like for me, archaeology, um, it's illegal. You can't do it without traditional owner um, engagement. So that's fine, but just thinking about that project that I did walk away from. Um, so that was, it was a personal project. Um, it, was, it was a project of work that only I was working on um, and I wasn't given a budget to do traditional owner engagement and it was a project that directly impacted traditional owners. Um, and so we, we shelved it. It's, it's never been worked on since um, because without that, I don't know how, I, I couldn't have done it. You just, I just couldn't have. Um, and that's really unfortunate. I think sometimes also um, particular projects procrastinate until the point of it's too late. Um, and so I think that with it, it's important to embed in your practice, in your workplace, that engagement happens upfront and it happens continuously because you should have already had these relationships. You should be building on these relationships um, you know, obviously sometimes you'll be going into new communities, but 
you should have know how to go into new communities because this is a skill that you've been working on your whole time you've been practicing um, and it should be embedded in your work practice and so I think that a lot of time people are hesitant or don't know how to or are unsure or don't want to burden Indigenous communities and I think you know that's in some ways that's fair um, but um, you know I think there's there's a lot of there's more benefit than not benefit of engagement. And I, th I think also too, doing as much research as you can, find what knowledge um, is, is there that you can draw on, um, whether that's about you know, the physical environment that would have been um, in that place prior to whatever colonial activity has happened on top of that, so that um, when you do get the opportunity to be engaging, you've actually already got a lot of knowledge and awareness that you're bringing with you um, as well. And um, Paul talked about the importance of plants re-establishing ecosystems where they've been lost um, is one of the things that you that you can do um, if you don't actually have a budget or a scope. Um, and may, maybe, maybe you've got a really simple project. Um, it may be that that's, you know, just some simple um, acts can, can be of benefit. Yeah, I guess the premise of that question when I was talking about it with Naoi, Carolyn Briggs was, you know, what if it's a, a couple who are redesigning their home and they're doing their backyard? And it might not be within an Aboriginal sensitivity overlay, so they don't have to go through the cultural heritage management plan process, but they want to do something. And that's what you're talking about. You know, you can look up what what the plant or the environmental vegetation class, let me get that right, the EVC of the area and and figure out what should be there and, and recreate that habitat for the, the flora and the fauna that would have existed. And I think, too, understanding the broader landscape as well. Like, what are the features of that landscape that are really important um, to cultural understanding and um, ensuring that you, you know, you can still see those elements within the landscape, that they don't become consumed by the physical scale of, of the built environment as well. So it's, it is actually maintaining that, that broader connectivity to that understanding of the land. Yeah, well, sight lines for nature rather than sight lines for buildings. That'd be nice. Let's make that happen. Um, I, my final question for you before perhaps we open up to questions from the audience if we're allowed to do that, I'm looking in directions, yes, cool, um, is, uh, you know, what would you like to change? What would you like to change now? If there's something about the systems that you work in, um, I know we've talked and touched on a couple of these things, but fundamentally, it's my favourite question of all time, if you could change one thing, what would it be? Often the biggest barrier is time. Um, so I think having the time in programs to um, have the conversations that you need to have and having the flexibility within the program that you're working with to incorporate change. Um, and it's not just about spending a certain amount of money by a certain date, that actually the, the process changes to fit the, pro, you know, the, the input and the information that you're gathering and the priorities that evolve through that process. Paul? Yeah, I probably wouldn't change too much um, other than budgets. Um, <laughs> you know, the budgets are always an issue, but uh, you know, let's, let's spend a bit few, do few more dollars. Um, but I, you know, I feel as though, you know, for me, I'm in a position, um, you know, a grateful position, a lucky position to, you know, um, extend and keep my culture alive and other cultures alive through a raft of um, processes. And I feel as though if, if, uh, you know, if we don't get more Indigenous landscape architects or whatever, you know, our culture could be left behind to some degree. You know, we've got a lot of different other 
culture's here now and, and we're still um, still trying to put back what's been lost and all that kind of thing. So I guess um, you know, a lot of my projects uh, draw on the history um, of landscape and culture and, and change, I guess, but it's also to encourage um, future generations to have a better understanding of um, you know, Aboriginal cultures within Australia, I guess. Um, and if, if I don't, like you know, one day when I retire or whatever, but if I don't, um, I feel as though we could, you know, to some, some degree, parts of our culture will be you know, a history book. Um, you know, we're losing languages and you know, not a few languages that get revived and all that kind of thing, but um, yeah, that's just one example. So, um, you know, I just keep on doing what I'm doing, I guess, and, um, and trying to make positive change um, for the benefit of the wider community. Um, in, as a whole, um, so yeah, more so for our um, own Indigenous communities. Um, I think, you know, I, I was just kind of looking down um, the city and kind of remembering how many um, excavations that I've worked on in the city in the past eight years, and it's probably 30, 40 different excavations in the CBD alone, and thinking about the things that I found, the things that I saw, and then reflecting on where is that in the like where is that in the landscape like where is that in the design um, or in the interpretation or in the footpath um, you know where are these stories and where are these hidden landscapes that are now destroyed for a car park hello um, and I think that's something that I would change is that um, those stories become more visible um, and that that there is an obligation um, in design that those stories of that place exactly where you are and those things that you found are brought to light um, because they're now destroyed. Um, I destroyed them, sorry. Um, I excavated them. Um, but I think that's something that I would change is that sort of the visibility of Aboriginal culture, of Aboriginal Melbourne or Aboriginal place um, is, um, yeah, something that I would change. We just need to do these cultural heritage management plans about you know, a lot earlier so that they can be incorporated perhaps into the design process rather than coming in at planning where exactly. decisions have been made. Or there's, there is, yeah, and I think that's, the, that's that element of, um, you know, I've, I've been doing these talks at the M Pavilion with Sarah for a long time now and I always feel like, oh, like I'm the sort of the not design person, but archaeology and cultural heritage is still part of the design process, but they often... Um, are like ships in the night and they, they don't sort of match up and, and how we can find a way for those things to talk and whether or not there is an element of a place that remains undesigned until such a point as the cultural heritage of the place and these stories and the elders um, have been able to consider and discuss these things. Um, you know, whether that's the... That's, I don't know if that's the um, solution or how that will work, but, I you know, there's always this sort of... Um, this sort of frustration that we come up with every year. Um, yeah, that, that those sorts of elements don't talk to each other. I can't tell you how excited I was when I started working on a project last year that had a cultural heritage management plan already. Oh, watch out. Yeah, <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> Sorry, we'll nerd out over here. Um, maybe if we open up to questions from the audience, if you've got a question, pop your hand up for any of our speakers or for everyone. Don't be shy. I know it's probably all our first time out in public. It's certainly mine. <laughs> Forgotten how to talk.
Hi everyone, my name's Sally. Um, I'd just like to firstly acknowledge um, the wandering people in whose country we sit today, um, their elders past, present and emerging, and um, the elders of my heritage, the Gunungurra people in um, the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. My question, um, I guess my observations tonight is that the conversation has been largely focused on preserving um, historical and tangible items um, of cultural heritage and engagement at um, the, it, during the process, after, uh, way after concepts have been developed and we're at the impact assessment stage where we're doing cultural heritage management plans and landscape, landscape assessments. Um, uh, and the concepts have been set way before then without that kind of level of engagement. So I guess I'd like to, in this forum, um, where we're talking about design obligations, which infers future actions, um, I guess challenge or um, ask you guys your opinion on how we can shift the thought processes around what engagement actually is and when it should be, um, when it should happen in the process. Like, um, in my view, it should happen way before or at the, at the I guess, birth of these concepts and, and be done leveraging on existing partnerships um, and relationships with um, our Indigenous um, communities. I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with mine, if you don't mind me jumping in. Um, my thoughts very squarely face on that it should happen before the EOI is even sent to the designer. Those relationships should exist during the procurement phase and that they should be developed and the brief itself should be developed with traditional owner engagement. Um, quite often that's very, very rarely the case. Um, and so our, ourselves as practitioners are often advocating for traditional owner engagement once the EOI hits our desk. And it is almost too late at that point. You have to work into overdrive and it really only becomes successful if you... Um, if you have a pre-existing relationship with those traditional owners. And so it it's, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all out here constantly doing these public talks trying to advocate for traditional owner engagement because we want that conversation to be had before that even reaches us. I would love to work on a project one day where... Um, actually, I have. I've worked on one project where the traditional owner was involved in in the de brief development and they were involved in selecting who the design team were. Um, and they're involved because it was core to the project um, and it was, it was classed as an Indigenous project. I guess the challenge then is if you're doing um, maybe a private project um, or if you're doing a, a... I mean, in my opinion, a public project that's for the public should have that conversation embedded in the procurement phase. A private project might be different because you're setting out different relationships. But, yeah, I mean, that's my thoughts. I think it's often, it's often challenging trying to engage and get all the benefits of a project once you've already defined what that project is. So I think it's critical that those voices and priorities are factored into strategy development so that then the priorities and projects that fall out of that reflect those values and where that energy needs to be put and what the overall, I mean, particularly on a city level, um, you you know, there might be certain places that are more important than others and that they actually need earlier attention than another project which might have a different agenda but it, it maybe is less critical to, to traditional owners and we can actually be more strategic about the way that we use their um, time as well. So I think bringing things back to a higher level and looking at what does governance look like in a, you know, in a state where we're looking at treaty... Um, understanding what those next iterations of, of governance and involvement of um, traditional owners in th those different levels of decision-making, I think, is really important for us to shift um, our processes to. Uh, engagement and cultural heritage surveys on projects as well, because they can save a lot of uh, money at the end of the day. 
if um, things can't be built upon. But it also provides opportunities for Aboriginal people to um, uh, document, I guess, their own, um, you know, their own uh, landscape as well. Um, and I was told by um, proper engagement as it starts conversation, um, you know, about the whole project. So if you can get that cleared off and squared off sort of at the, at the start and then you find other ways to you know, empower Aboriginal people within, within the journey of the project, um, it's always a good outcome as well. Um, and I just wanted to sort of add to that, um, the power of sort of cumulative knowledge um, and sort of taking it as a personal responsibility to to build your knowledge of the place and of Indigenous um, histories and culture and what happens in Indigenous architecture itself um, and Indigenous design. And so I think, um, you know, that's, that's sort of really important that, um, you know, people are taking, taking personal responsibility for their own knowledge. I think um, if just a final comment on in response to your question, I think collectively over the whole Black Architecture series, we've sort of painted a picture of a maybe more ideal version of what the process might look like, which starts with engagement during procurement. Uh, it starts with the brief development with traditional owners. It starts with their involvement in, as I said before, who the actual architects or designers may be working on that project. It has cultural heritage management plans built in a lot earlier. Um, it has ongoing engagement that's been set by the terms of the traditional owners. Um, it's, it's all of our design professionals when they're at university actually hearing from and learning from traditional owners when they're in those environments. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's, we've got a long list over the course of this of things that we would like to change. But, you know, another one that we could do, what I was talking about the other day, was, you know, we have... If you're doing a project um, by a river in Victoria, you talk to Melbourne Water. Um, so they're a referral body that has, has decision-making power. Why, don't, why aren't our traditional owners referral bodies for projects that go through planning to make sure that there's, in that sense, a final check, but also that there's engagement embedded because in order to get approval from Melbourne Water, you need to go through an engagement process and you need to meet certain obligations and rules and guidelines. So those systems exist for other organisations and institutions. Why can't we then make them work with traditional owners in mind? It just takes a council going, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and then it sort of snowballs. But um, th there's a very long list of things that we could do. Yeah, on, on that, if, if you're dealing next to the river, I mean, most rivers were trade routes in whatever direction they, they travelled in. Um, and they also uh, basically were our supermarkets um, where they provided obviously water, food sources and shelter. Um, and then there's also times of ceremony, um, for whatever ceremony it might be, and also um, connections to um, uh, you know, Dreamtime creation ancestors and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's not just a river. Um, so there's, there's a whole raft of um, yeah, uh, different um, uh, cultural complexities associated with rivers and, and creeks and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. so uh, as I said, it's not just a, you know, in the layman's eyes, it's just a river travelling across country sort of thing, but to us, it's um, it's a whole whole suite of uh, different um, uh, different things. So, yeah. um, are there any more questions? Yep, one at the back. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Broderick. Um, I suppose what I've taken away is this is a big question of ethics and what to do when you are given a design brief. But I was wondering if you are in a position where you're working on a design brief or any other um, type of project and you feel as though there are some ethical dilemmas where it does come to engagement of traditional ownership, what um, capacity can can the everyday person who's just working within an office and you know trying to fit their own um, design obligations, what can they do to step outside their company and try and address these issues and maybe get another body to then come and act um, on the behalf of traditional owners with the company that they do work with? Sky, can I handball that one to you? And Maddie, it's a bit different for you because you're you're obligated to actually engage with traditional owners, so it's written into what you're doing. I mean, I can answer that from my perspective, but maybe Sky or Paul, do you want to answer the question? Um, I guess the only thing that I would suggest is talk to your peers, because I think there's lots of knowledge that other um, practitioners will have about whether they've been able to, I guess, overcome similar types of issues. So I think it's just, I guess, understanding what sort of agency can you have through your own role? Are there other people that you can get involved um, to help, I guess, build knowledge? And I, I guess in a proactive way, as well, there's lots of practices who um, are trying to, um, in the way that they operate with their own reconciliation action plan. So I think it's, if, if people are taking on those responsibilities themselves, um, all of that should lead to a shift in how people um, might go about the work that they're doing and um, be in a better position to um, also educate the clients and other um, consultants and other practitioners that, that, that they're working with. Um, as well, so it's. I don't have one clear answer for you, but I think all, all of this is incremental shifts, um, and yeah, small, lo lots of small wins will make progress. I'd agree with that. Talk to peers, talk to other people who have had similar projects, um, and, and see how they went about things. Because, um, as you could appreciate, you know, the first port of call for um, uh, registered sites is over here in SA is the um, Aboriginal Affairs. Um, but not all sites are recorded, um, and that's just the way it is within our community. Um, so you're yeah, better off talking to um, traditional owners as well, so to get their view on things. So what they want to release to everyone that they do. So yes, yeah, so just talk to other people, I guess, um, and especially your boss, I guess. But, yeah. Have a yarn to your boss. Um, I wonder, do you feel comfortable sharing with us what profession you work in? Engineering, okay. Um, so I guess I'm, I can answer that from the, the perspective, or my perspective in architecture, um, not so much engineering, but for me, um, we, whenever an, an EOI comes across our desk and we think it should have traditional owner engagement in it, we put that in the EOI and we put in a fee for it and we say that a fee needs to be allowed for traditional owners for their time. Um, and we, we tend to establish what that might look like based on previous engagements with those traditional owner groups. So if you perhaps haven't engaged with those traditional owner groups before, that might not be possible, but there are plenty of people constantly talking about what engagement looks like. So that might be an avenue for you. Um, uh, it also depends on, I guess, if it's a competition or if it's um, an EOI or an RFT that's come across your desk. Competitions are complex and something that we really do need to change because probity um, sort of prohibits you from engaging with traditional owners and if the people who are convening the competition don't undertake that engagement on behalf of 
the design competition, then you, um, you've already come up with a, a costed concept, almost schematic design, uh, that then can't really be changed before you can undertake traditional owner engagement. So competitions are a real issue that I think the design profession face at the moment um, in order to get any outcome that's of benefit to the community and it's actually genuine. Um, but as Sky said, you could, you know, if your office doesn't have a reconciliation action plan, there can actually be a tool to work in your favour for those things. So I know a lot of people don't have great um, thoughts on them, but if you use them in a way that says, okay, our company, one of our um, outcomes is that we want to make sure that we advocate for traditional owner engagement, that um, our staff are educated and have a certain requirement for CBD or whatever it might be that is... Um, Indigenous-led or Indigenous-focused, and then you can start to piece together all these different tools that you might... or the power that you do have within something like a wrap um, to create wider change. Um, I think it's probably trial and error in finding a sympathetic person who's um, higher up in the company, um, or being subversive, you know? You know, is it a requirement? One thing that we often do... Um, I don't know if I should admit this publicly, but anyway, whatever. One thing that we often do is um, when an organisation that we're working with has a reconciliation action plan, we'll read the reconciliation action plan in our EOI process, so when we're um, bidding for the job, and we will point out where exactly traditional owner engagement would meet the obligations in their wrap, so it becomes something that's perhaps an easy win from them, but during the process that re relationship's developed um, and becomes... A positive outcome. So there's there's many many different ways to I guess be subversive and find it find the good outcome. Um, maybe time for one more question. Hi, um, my name's Leanne. I'm an urban designer. Um, thanks for a really fantastic discussion. Um, I was really interested in some of the comments. Obviously, there have been lots of comments about the importance of engagement, and then you asked Sarah a really interesting question about, you know, what do we do if we can't engage? And you also referenced um, a former talk where someone was designing a private backyard and, and, and Sky made that comment about, you know, you could look, look at in local Indigenous plants and get your own knowledge. So I guess my question is, what is the obligation to engage? Like, how do you make the call on which projects... Um, that you do engage on. And Sarah, you mentioned that you make that decision on EOIs and come in. So, so what is the obligation to engage or when or on what type of project? Any of you want to answer this? I guess some, sometimes within um, local government agencies, there are certain um, that's ones that are um, set within planning frameworks, like within 100 metres of the of a water, um, water course, for example, where there are planning triggers um, for around cultural heritage um, management. But I think also, too, if there has been, um, I guess, past engagement or a broader understanding of what the cultural values of that landscape are, it can be easier to identify, well, we know that that's an important place, so therefore there are, um, there are conversations that we need to have um, because we know that there are specific um, Indigenous stakeholders connected with that place. It might be a memorial or, or something of that nature. But I think there's also other ways in terms of, um, you know, actually setting up an MOU with traditional owner organisations to, to ask them what are the kinds of things that you actually want to be engaged on and taking a proactive um, perspective so that you're not bothering them with a whole range of things which are maybe a little bit um, sort of bread and butter things when it's actually... They, 
and they may not have a lot of agency in some of those things because they're regulated by, you know, road rules or, you know, it might be just a, a, a civil project with not a lot of scope. Um, so, yeah, it, I think it's just understanding where, what are their values and priorities and how can we capture those in some of our processes um, as well. I'll just um, add on to that. Um, yeah, I guess it, it, it's scalable, right? Like there's, um, you know, there's, there's the legislative impacts under the Heritage Act about, you know, if you're within 100 metres of waterway, if you're here or here or in this landscape, these are the, this is your obligation under this piece of legislation. Um, but then it's also perhaps, you know, it's not within that, you fall outside of that. Like, what are your obligations? And generally it's nothing about us without us. Um, and so if your project... Um, has particular um, relevance to Indigenous communities, Indigenous peoples, of course. Um, but say, I don't know, yeah, maybe you do want to build a garden in your school, an Indigenous garden in your school. Um, there are a lot of resources written and published by traditional owners and Aboriginal people, um, you know, that can help you do that and, and come into talks like this and doing stuff like... Um, uh, uh, listening to Aboriginal people who, who are publishing those resources and giving you those resources, I think, is fine. And so um, traditional owners are overwhelmed, um, especially in Melbourne. Um, and so not every project needs to necessarily have direct input, but it should be informed by, and that should be informed by the breadth of Indigenous publications that are out there. Paul, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I just think if, if your gut feeling is that there could be something there, um, ask the questions and, and, you know, and become engaged, I guess. So, you know, it might be a sandy area. So we have a lot of burial sites and burial mounds in sandy areas, um, generally because the digging was easier. But, um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, and obviously water courses and things like that. So, uh, as I said, if, if your gut's the same, there could be something there. Seek, seek out the answers, I guess, and, and yeah, go from there. Um, I would probably just add to that and say that it would be great if every project could engage with traditional owners, but that's clearly not the case. What I think really needs to happen is that, um, and maybe it's best placed in planning, is that um, whoever organises our planning system uh, actually undertakes that engagement with traditional owners on behalf of all projects that need to go through planning in that place. Um, and in that sense can determine what kind of projects need traditional owner engagement and which ones don't. Um, so if you've got a public project of a particular size or if you've got a project that's particularly public facing, that should be a minimum requirement. Um, if it's a private residential development, as long as it's not within a, an Aboriginal sensitivity overlay, then perhaps not. But those kind of conversations need to happen with the traditional owner groups of those lands and perhaps the best place for that is within the planning process itself so that those rules are set um, before anybody even enters onto that. And there also always needs to be a mechanism built into any of those kind of um, arrangements with traditional learners for it to be reviewed on a regular process as more knowledge and information comes out that, that can be added to or changed or developed over time. Um, I think I've probably said this like 47 times in public talks now, but you know, there's so much scope within our planning system to also just have a bit of fun with it. Like, you know, why don't we have um, the Wurundjeri challenge or the Bunurong challenge or the, you know, whatever, and have traditional owners set a challenge for all projects within that area for that period of time um, because we need to reinstate, well, the example I usually always give is we need to reinstate the, the native bee population or we need to reinstate a certain blah, blah, blah. 
And that means that every project can contribute to something as a wider whole that gets developed in that place, in that time, or in that, you know, sort of area. Um, you know, we, we do need to just sort of sit down with a whiteboard and be really strict, or a blackboard, whatever, and be really strategic and go, actually, where where is agency and power within the system that we can give over uh, to traditional owners that doesn't, it's not, those sort of things don't impede on regulations and responsibilities and all of those sort of things that we have to follow as professionals anyway. So where can we current on a greater scale, but also what is part of the systems that we actually really do need to change because they're fundamentally causing harm. Um, but I think sort of in general, at least my personal ethics on every situation is every project in Australia is built on Indigenous land. Um, therefore, every project has the capacity to be an active um, destruction, maintenance, repair or celebration. Uh, and we need to start at the very least with um, maintenance and aim for celebration. And sort of somewhere in between that scale, if we can achieve it on every project, then we're not only meeting our obligations to country, but we're also acting ethically as people with power in that situation. Um, so how that actually eventuates in all those scenarios is, you know, it's up for grabs. Just need to get in a room and, and hash it out. But also those conversations need to be had with traditional owners because they're the ones that understand their country. Um, and if that can be done at that higher level of planning, then maybe that's a way of responding to that situation so that by the time it gets to our desk, it's not a question, it's, a, it's an understood process. Um, I might, sorry, I just went on a rant. I might just wrap this up. Um, thank you to our speakers, Paul, Sky, Maddie. Thank you so much for sharing your time and coming out in real life. Although, Paul, sorry, you're not in real life. Um, we have you on a big, beautiful screen. Uh, I think you're actually larger than life than all of us. Um, thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your perspectives, particularly questions around, you know, that might be vulnerable or personal to you. And also thank you to all of our audience for coming out and um, listening to us having on. So thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.